Hello and welcome to The Tally Ho, our podcast all about classic cult TV show The Prisoner, with me Eason. And me Bex. And today we're talking about episode 16, Once Upon a Time, the penultimate episode of the show. Yes, now this is a very unusual episode in many respects. It was actually recorded fairly early on in the first production run. It was the sixth episode to be put into production. And it was initially intended that had the prisoner run for more than one season, this would be the season one finale. But as it turned out, they only did one season of 17 episodes, so it was moved to episode 16 to set up a cliffhanger for what would ultimately be the finale fallout. And I believe it was also shot back to back with The Chimes of Big Ben, so it features Liam McKern again. Yes, so his contract was extended to cover an extra couple of weeks so that they could film this. And I think they filmed it pretty quickly, <laughs> which could explain why he uh, apparently had some kind of breakdown while making the episode. And the original title was Degree Absolute, which would make sense given that that's the uh, ex- almost sort of experiment that is being conducted on the two of them, on number two and number six. But changing the name to Once Upon a Time, it, it feeds back into that um, fairy tale nursery rhyme motif that has been there since the very opening episode of The Prisoner, but really comes into its its fruition in this episode here. And it's been a while, but this is the first episode in a long time, which is ultimately locked into the running order in some way. Mm. So there are only really three episodes where you can place them in a linear order in The Prisoner. The first is obviously Arrival, and then you have Once Upon a Time and Fallout, which form the last two episodes. And we're not going to talk about Fallout at all in this episode, because a lot of people are listening along whilst watching uh, the TV show for the first time. But it feels like an episode which is there to introduce some of the themes that are going to become apparent in the episode Fallout, and potentially after the episodes that would have been part of that second production block. So Do Not Forsake Me and My Darling, Living in Harmony and The Girl Who Was Death, which are unusual in their own ways, and we've discussed that already. This kind of brings the show back to its central premise, if indeed there is one, which is uh, number six trying to be broken by the village. And in this case, it almost feels like everything that the village has done so far in previous episodes, it, it hasn't worked. And the response is to try one last thing that they can do to break number six. And it just goes back to the the core of, of what the show was about. It has all the elements that we haven't seen in a while. It's, I mean, first, it's very much an episode focused on number six. Mm. It deals with the antagonism directly between uh, six and a number two as well. And also it's about the, almost like a fight for the control of of who Six actually is. It goes back to that. And we haven't seen that in a while. And so although you you could argue that it it has that, which is probably the wrong word, but kind of gimmicky structure that you see in the previous couple of episodes, it is very much an episode of The Prisoner at Heart. And I wonder if that comes from it being originally, like you said, an episode that was actually conceived quite early on in the production run. Yeah, it fits so well as episode 16, um, you know, in tandem with the finale, that when you think about how early on it was written and conceived in the run, it makes you wonder how much of an influence this episode had on the direction that subsequent episodes took, particularly in the second production sequence. 
and also how much of the ending McGowan already had in mind when he was writing this. Because it's, it's hard to imagine how you could have gone from a season one cliffhanger like this and then made a second season that was in any respect like the later episodes that we saw. It wouldn't have made any sense for, for this to have happened and then for, you know, uh, Do Not Forsake Me Oh My Darling to happen immediately afterwards. But three things, uh, to me at least, make this episode potentially the most interesting in terms of the gap between its numbering in the production order and its numbering in the final air date. The first, and again, this is all based on the idea that this was made very early on in the uh, in the production, so well ahead of them knowing potentially how long the series would last and, and, and what direction it would go in. The first is that there are lots of elements of the episode that reveal a potential backstory to number six, which I think isn't really touched upon as much in any other episode. The second thing is the extent of the autobiographical links between both number six and Patrick McGowan, which have been hinted at before, but I think had a stronger presence in the earlier part of uh, the series than, than later on. I mean, certainly with Arrival. The third really important thing, I think there are elements of the episode that make it more than just a potential season finale, as it was originally planned. There are elements which suggest that all along it was clear what the ending of the show might entail. I mean, maybe not in detail, but the final interaction between number six and the supervisor have a very clear direction for the final episode. And it's odd that that was there really early on. And once again, it's an episode which goes back to the show being about number six and Magoon himself. Uh, so we have these very autobiographical elements, but more notably, it's the fact that this is an overtly theatrical episode as well. Mm. It strips away some of the elements that we're used to seeing in the village in order to give us the essence of maybe what the show was about in its rawest form. And I think just seeing it, it's a very it's a very intense episode. It's clear that it, it would have taken its toll on McGowan and McKern whilst making it. And it just feels like this is that, you know, this is the true kind of penultimate episode feel. It's like everything is everything is on the line here. And ultimately, it has a conclusion that can only go in one direction, which is Fallout. Yeah, and it, it feels like this is the closest we ever really get to understanding not necessarily what is in number six's mind, but what was in McGowan's mind when he was conceiving of a lot of this stuff. Mm. Uh, it's, I think it's the, the closest reveal that we ever have to uh, whatever issues it was he was trying to work out while, while mm. making this show. And perhaps a criticism of how he felt uh, people did deal with those issues as well. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there's a lot to talk about, but it's going to be quite tricky to, uh, to actually talk about it, as we will see. So I think we should crack on with it. Why do you care? I know your voice. I have been here before. Why do you care? You'll never know. So the opening credits, unusual for the first time in a while because uh, we have the reveal of who the number two is. 
which hasn't happened in a few episodes, actually. Yeah, we get the unmistakable voice of Leo McKern shortly before his name gets plastered over it as uh, as the guest star for the episode. <laughs> <laughs> we also have, in a more uh, tangential fashion, the fact that the uh, the title, Once Upon a Time, when it appears, for the first time, um, it uses the modified Albertus font, which is used throughout The Prisoner, but there is a dot on the eye, yeah. which we uh, which we don't see on any other village signs, nor in any of the other uh, titles which have an eye in them as well. Yeah, you're right. The village font is normally just like a mini capital I. Mm. That's really odd, because that must have been intentional. You wouldn't have even created an eye in that font mm. with a with a, as a lowercase i for for any particular purpose. Maybe it was the addition of a mini rover. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they're everywhere. <laughs> And also in the credits, uh, again, because this came from the first production block as well, George Markstein is credited again as script editor. So although he wasn't involved in the second production block, this episode came from that first one. And so he's credited in the episode in its uh, running order as the 16th. Yeah, which I'm sure thrilled him because by all accounts, he loathed this episode and it was a large part of why he left the series <laughs> because he thought it was a complete nonsense. <laughs> and... Uh, it was written and directed by Patrick McGowan, but interestingly, he he must have suspected that people would think the script was nonsense when he initially wrote it, because when it was initially distributed amongst the cast and crew, it didn't have his name on. He used yet another fake name, the third fake name of the series, which was Archibald Schwartz. <laughs> <laughs> but by the time it made it to air... It does say, uh, written and directed by Patrick McGoon. Yeah, and it's atypical, not just uh, as an episode of The Prisoner, but I think this is probably the most atypical of any ITC show that would have been around. I mean, this this goes so far out of the remit of a standard episode of television. I mean, it moves into very avant-garde, kind of play-for-today style structure. And the way it's presented, I think if you came to this episode as your first episode of The Prisoner... I think you would have no bearings at all. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it, watching it, it's it's one of those episodes which is an integral part of the show. It's you know it's unusual because it it is locked into a position in the series as we were saying earlier, and that does kind of draw you in a little bit because you know that what you're watching is highly relevant. So they can essentially present the material to how you know, however they want, and I think that. The fact that they framed it uh, for the large part as a two-hander is a is a really a, well, it's a very original but also adventurous way of uh, presenting uh, an episode of The Prisoner. And I don't think if the show had continued, it would have actually continued ever doing episodes like this again. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's, it's the kind of thing you might have expected in a slightly avant-garde night at the theatre, but not the kind of thing people would have expected to be mm-hmm. beamed into their living room at you know, eight o'clock on a Sunday night or whenever it whenever it went out. It's it's like if you got Beckett or Jeanet to write an episode of The Prisoner. It's it's com- it's completely wild. And I I'd wonder a lot of people focus on the audience reaction to Fallout, which we're not going to talk about yet, but I do wonder what the reaction was to this. And if Twitter had been around at the time, how many people would have been on there afterwards going, What on earth did I just watch? What was that? <laughs> And one thing to add, um, it's one thing I always feel about this episode, which is if ever there was a stage adaptation of The Prisoner mm. in some capacity, I think it'd be really interesting to see 
two people do this episode. Mm. That completely out of context of the rest of the show. I think there is there is so much you can you can do with sort of the bulk of the episode, that forty five minutes in the embryo room. And I would love to see somebody do that properly on stage and have that. Because I think there's a you know, that really is the heart of the prisoner, but it works as um as theatre but in your own home. Yeah, and because they're um trapped within that space you can almost do it in the round in mm. order to entrap them within the audience mm. and then the audience becomes the um you know the, the authority of the village watching them waiting to see what's going to happen and they can all shout die 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 <laughs> at the end <laughs> <laughs> well somebody has to shout it <laughs> so the episode opens on the green dome uh we're back in uh, number two's room and there's organ music playing which again kind of sets things up like the like the like the prelude, as you're entering a theatre almost, and in one of the most striking images that we see so far, the round globe chair that is usually occupied by a number two, it's rotating around as the butler enters, and inside, uh, it's not number two, it's a rover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, is that why it's round? So rover can fit in it. <laughs> the whole time we thought it was the number twos, but it's there. It is. It is really strange. I mean, it's you know, I think. You know, I'd never viewed the sim- you know the idea of rover being a sphere matching the the shape of the chair, but it does make perfect sense. But you kind of wonder, you know, it's just a weird. It's it starts things off with a slightly absurd image, but also one that's deeply unsettling, which I think really sets the tone for how the episode uh, goes. Yeah, and the butler is wheeling in a tray of breakfast, and when he starts setting it out, it's almost like he's about to serve breakfast to rover. <laughs> Uh, when, you know, as we all know, Rover really just eats human souls when he <laughs> devours people. And I can't remember if, if they're there before, and I don't think they are, but I really like the fact that the uh, that the big screen has curtains over it, which it has these kind of drapes and also the... Um... It's got a proscenium arch, which definitely wasn't there before, with the red fabric draped across the top. Yeah, and it feels like you're about to watch a performance. It's a... Uh... You know, all these little things are there to kind of set the episode apart and show that we're about to enter the world of the prisoner, but in a in a very theatrical way. Yeah. So the butler starts serving tea and toast and uh, all the usual breakfast food. Don't know if there's any uh, flapjacks in there. <laughs> and a, a chair pops up from the ground, and then the butler rings a bell, which again is quite theatrical because the bell goes before the performance mm. is about to begin. And from under the floor, up pops Leo McCann's number two, looking very unhappy. And it's certainly not the entrance you would expect from number two, because number two would normally rise up inside the chair. And immediately, Leo McCann's number two is, well, he's on edge. And he's, you know, he's, he's clearly very upset about the fact that um, he's been called into the situation. And certainly uh, it transpires that he doesn't, like the fact that Rover is there as well. So he he first shouts at the butler to uh, remove the food and then he gets on you know the big red phone and uh, I presume there he's talking to number one or one of the higher village authorities. And he says some very interesting things. He talks about the fact that uh, he has been brought back by the village in order to carry out the newest plan. I mean, clearly they don't know what they want him to do but they feel that maybe he got closest to breaking number six in the past. And uh, unlike Colin Gordon's number two, who did get a second chance, this is his uh, second chance here. And I think they feel that maybe he has uh, 
the means to to have a go at breaking number six properly this time. Yeah, he he's very angry on the phone. He shouts that he wants Rover to be to be gotten out of there. He he says that he's not an inmate, mm. um, which is a, a very telling way of referring to the villagers mm. as inmates. And uh, he tells them that they're previously using the wrong approach on number six and that he's going to do it his way from now on. Mm. And he shouts at the butler to leave the coffee behind. It's strange here because he doesn't seem to be in a relationship with the butler that a number two usually would have because the butler is not doing anything directly at his command or knows what he's thinking. You know, he's doing his own thing and he has to tell the butler what to do. And the but, you know, so it, it feels like the... There's a weird power shift in in the room here because Rover is present and everyone defers to Rover here, which makes Rover an even weirder presence. I mean, it's what we've seen as this bouncing inflatable ball that hasn't really been seen a lot uh, in the last few episodes at all. Now it's kind of got this huge presence that seems to be very threatening and the butler does exactly what it wants. And McKern is suddenly subservient to, to that in the hierarchy, whatever that means. I mean, if you're working underneath a giant white ball, you know, <laughs> I think you know there's a problem from the beginning. Yeah, it's interesting that Colin Gordon, number two, the second time around he was constantly drinking milk mm. to calm his nerves, presumably because the stress of being number two would give him an ulcer or something mm. like that. But McKern's number two, he's not having breakfast, but he is going to drink coffee, mm. which given how stressed and anxious he already is, probably not a good idea <laughs> to be over-caffeinated. But that's, that's all that he wants, which I think speaks to his state of mind. Um, and after ordering Rover to be gotten rid of, the entire chair descends onto the floor. And I, I just, I am slightly obsessed with Rover and, and what it is mm-hmm. and what it means. But it feels like in this episode, it almost has a personality just mm-hmm. in that little scene where, to me, it feels like it wasn't even put there by the powers that be. It, it feels like Rover is trolling him by yeah. sitting in his chair you know saying what are you going to do about it then you're going to get rid of me <laughs> it, it feels like rover has a yeah it's been a bit cheeky yeah and we've never seen a situation where a number two is scared of rover i mean mm. you know it's number two and the supervisor who seem to activate rover and uh dispatch it to do whatever they need it to do but here the fact that um number two is feeling slightly threatened by it and sees it as a sign that Although the village have brought him back, it's under a different set of terms. He, he he doesn't seem to have the status that a number two would have usually in the series. And certainly it's not the status he had when he was a number two in the Chimes of Big Ben. But it just seems like, I mean, there's this, you know, Rover, like you said, I think it has a, it has a strange presence and autonomy that represents the fact that the village is this completely amorphous, faceless, blob that you i mean it has it you know it has a presence but nothing that you can latch onto, and yet you're terrified of it and no one really knows what it's there for so number two starts watching on the big screen number six having breakfast and he's actually having breakfast not mm. just coffee and he's quite happily strolling around in his cottage uh eating some toast um taking a glance at the window checking the village is still there <laughs> And number two is so irate about this. He keeps sort of muttering to himself, why do you care? Why do you care? And number six is also pacing again, which we haven't seen since those early episodes as well, Mm. which kind of is a sign that this was one of the earliest episodes shot where he's still trying to figure out exactly what's going on. And he's he's very much on edge 
he's upset with his imprisonment and he's always kind of thinking and plotting and he doesn't have that uh, more relaxed, slightly shrewd perspective on things where he's, you know, he's able to come up with these controlled plans where he is going to find a way to uh, to take on the village in some way. At this point, he still feels like he's he's trapped. He's unsure. He doesn't know exactly what the nature of the village is. Yeah, and there's a beautifully framed shot here where number two is looking up at the big screen as a window into number six's life with the, the curtains either side of the screen, while number six in his cottage is looking out through a window onto the village with curtains mm-hmm. either side of his window. It's, like, it's windows within windows. They're already kind of... What, what, which is quite important as the episode goes on, they're already mirroring each other mm. in terms of what they're physically doing. So number two then calls up number six and asks him, why do you care? And number six recognises his voice as the uh, the number two that he met in the Chimes of Big Ben. Number two presses the question again, why do you care? And number six replies, you will never know. <laughs> and uh, promptly walks out. So the first thing that happens uh, when he leaves is that Six seems to accost a man with an umbrella, who's uh, referred to in the credits as Umbrella Man. Um, <laughs> it's rather slightly rubbish superhero. <laughs> I am Umbrella Man. I will not reveal my number. That is my superpower. <laughs> and he's in the town square and Six is demanding to know uh, what his number is. Now, the interesting thing about this is that Six is still unsure i think of of how the village operates so he's you know he's deliberately pushing him to reveal this information because he doesn't really understand what this numbering system is and he probably feels that there are people in the village who can be broken who will be able to reveal some of the secrets of uh, of what's going on and interestingly that the umbrella man also is pleading with him not to ask any questions mm. and and just to stay out of his way and the manner in which uh, six kind of prods people again that you know that's a very uh, crude way for you know for six to interact with a village, which hasn't been seen in a while. Yeah, questions are a burden to others. Answers are prison to oneself. Mm. And all these things are are very much aspects of the show as it was being set up. And so maybe it's a good idea that this episode is is moved to later in the series because it does allow the prisoner to circle back to the beginning almost. Yeah, so then we have number two. Finally, he's got his chair back. <laughs> he's, he's got Rover out there. And he's sitting reading a progress report, presumably catching up on everything that number six has been up to since the time of the Big Ben. And it seems like he's actually uh, watching a box set of The Prisoners. Because <laughs> <laughs> for the next few minutes, he he watches snapshots of uh, uh, scenes from the previous episodes that would have been made up until this point in the production run. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and he's, he's flicking through a folder of uh, information and photos of number six. And uh, you see clips from uh, Free For All. Uh, there's definitely some from Arrival in there. There's also a bit from Dance of the Dead as well. And perhaps these episodes, it's not only that they were the ones that had been shot up until this point, but there is always that um, that story that may be apocryphal about McGowan having his you know his seven episodes that made up the prisoner and it's interesting that with this being part of the first production block and shot very early on um, the episodes he chooses to use clips from are, are part of you know some of the episodes which I think he felt were most important to his interpretation of what the prisoner was about. Yeah so number two gets on the red phone again and asks for permission for degree absolute 
which uh, is presumably something so drastic that he cannot decide off his own back that he's going to implement this. He has to get permission from the powers that be to to go through this. Yeah, for all the conversations that a number two will have with the voice on the other end of the phone about how number six is special, he cannot be harmed, they would be very careful with how they treat him if they're going to break him. The way that number two is behaving really implies that there is an inherent risk involved in this process degree absolute. And it's a risk which everyone needs to be aware of before they engage with it. But it's, it is very much a last resort as well. Yeah, so he, he says that there's, he feels that there's no alternative to doing this and that they both have to be risked in the process in order to go forward with this. And there's a very telling clip that is used because the uh, the book set that he's catching up on <laughs> on the screen that is playing while he's on the phone at that moment shows the clip from Free For All of number six saying, I intend to discover who are the prisoners and who are the wardens. Yeah. And using that specific clip in that particular line implies what is to come in terms of the two of them going head to head and effectively switching places between who is the prisoner and who mm. is the warden. Yeah, up until now, it's been it's been a question of number six and members of the uh, village who are sort of trapped there or rendered there, I suppose, being the prisoners. And the village authority, um, whether it's number two or the stripy goons or whoever, they are the warders. It's always been that way. And that was explicitly discussed in episodes like Checkmate, for example. Here, that central tenant is actually not necessarily what we thought it meant. Mm. You know, the fact that the power can shift. And indeed, like you say, in uh, introducing that concept here, it gives us the first hint of what this uh, process is going to be about and how it is about the risk that is posed to both people who partake in it. Third way back. Slow and hold on five. One, two, three... So number two convinces them to, well, whoever they are on the other end of the line, to go with this. He says, I, I, I am a good man, I was a good man, but he will be better if you get him. And there's been this implication all the way through the prisoner, that part of number six's importance to the village is that they want to win him over. I think it's it's explicitly talked about in, uh, in Dance of the Dead when number two orders the initial experiment to stop. Um, she says something about, you know, wanting to win him over, that they want him on their side. And at this point, it's almost as if number two is saying, look, one of us is going to go through this process if I go, it'll be because you get him and he will be even better than me at this, whatever it is that they're wanted for. And the plan is to uh, initiate this process, degree absolute, immediately. And the process will last one week, which number two claims is too short because it could because it's such a serious process that uh, it could actually damage him if they don't if they don't give it the time it needs uh, to be carried out. 
So number two then goes to the control room and tells the supervisor that uh, it's time to initiate degree absolute. And the supervisor is incredulous about this, implying that, well, I think he says something like, uh, mind if I check, Mm. which means that one, this is something which isn't done very lightly. And two, maybe it's the the shock of knowing that this is probably an endgame move. And certainly it's an endgame move involving a previous number two who's being brought back, probably specifically to carry this out. Yeah, and number two doesn't like being questioned and tells the supervisor that he will check nothing. He's just going to go ahead and do it. So they they seem to release everyone from their jobs, Mm. um, which you would think that even though they're going to do this experiment between number two and number six, you would still need to monitor all of the other residents of the village. There's to be other stuff going on in the meantime. But the idea that they're going to start this double night time and the really sinister thing about double night time is that it sounds like in an instant they cannot they can basically manipulate the whole population of the village and basically send them to sleep <laughs> whilst the uh, degree absolute is actually taking place, which kind of shows how important the process is and probably why the supervisor is so anxious about triggering it. But again, hints at the at the kinds of things that, that the village is capable of doing as well to its own citizens. Yeah, so after giving the order, most of the staff leave the control room and it's just number two and the supervisor left and the two guys who are still on the... Well, it's actually a seesaw, isn't it? Mm. We're about to get another seesaw very soon. And the next bit, it's not entirely clear what they're doing, but number two and the supervisor are firing some kind of wavelength at number six that, that there's no explanation for it and that this this is where we begin to sort of enter the theater of the absurd because it's just repeated numbers strings of numbers and repetition of numbers and they're going to be the same numbers that we hear strings of and repetition of down in the embryo room again and again and again and there's no explanation really of what it is that they're doing to number six other than that it seems to be agitating him. But they go through several different wave bands, testing numbers, saying, you know, one, two, three, four, five, one, three, four, two, five, 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 um, until number six is put to sleep, effectively. And it, it it is very in keeping with the absurdity of it, that there is no explanation as to what this means. Yeah, and the holding on five as well, that becomes a theme that becomes very evident in the embryo room later on yeah so then as number two departs to go to number six's place in in a slightly touching moment the supervisor tells him i'd hate to see you go (laughs) so the supervisor clearly knows that this is going to be a two men enter one man leaves situation you know this is village thunderdome that's about to uh (laughs) psychoanalytic thunderdome that's what it is and is this the first time that the uh, supervisor has appeared in a while as well? Yeah, because we, we saw him theoretically get fired in Hammer into Anvil. <laughs> I think a lot of people got fired in Hammer into Anvil. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think we've seen him that much since then. Mm. Uh, but he's he's clearly outlasted all of these number twos and uh, is afraid that he's about to outlast this one as well. Yeah, but he has these strange powers, the supervisor, which again... Much like Rover and the butler, it places him at a at a 
at a level closer to probably what number one than the number twos ever are. I mean, even when he has that strange thing where he's calling out the numbers, the one, two, three, four, five, six, and he keeps holding on five, the intensity with which he says the five over and over again seems to relate directly to the the intensity of the of the hypnotic wave band or whatever they're they're using on number six, which implies either that he's saying it with a level of intensity that correlates with the wave band itself, or he's actually controlling that wave band whilst he's saying it, which would be really weird if he's just able to say it and trigger that as well. So it moves into that weird realm of the kinds of technologies that the village seems to have. Um, and we transition then exactly from, you know, the weirdness of being able to manipulate number six when he's sleeping to showing how they're planning to uh, begin the degree absolute. So we're now in number six's cottage. And whilst he's asleep, uh, the light, which conveniently is right above his bed. I mean, if I was in his place, I would have moved the bed by now. Because <laughs> it must be happening very frequently. Don't drink any tea. And don't sleep below a light or anything like that. Um, it starts uh, pulsing and uh, starts lowering towards him as well. Yes, and as it does, we hear the voice of number two, who is standing at the foot of his bed, sort of standing over him in a very menacing parental fashion. And he's sort of shouting nursery rhymes. It's, uh, it's not the kind of thing you do to actually put somebody to sleep if you were trying to get them to nod off. You know, he, he manages to uh, perform the most angry nursery rhymes I've ever heard. But the choice of nursery rhymes that they have here is very telling. So it begins with Humpty Dumpty, which is a story about someone in a, well, in a high-up position who falls and is broken and can't be put back together, which has an echo of what we're about to see. Then there's Jack and Jill went up the hill. Jack fell down and broke his crown. Jill came tumbling after. So again, about trying to do something, failing and getting broken afterwards. And then the grand old Duke of York, which uh, I know there's lots of different theories about what Duke that's actually about. But ultimately, it's a, uh, a rhyme about futility. You go up the hill, you come back down the hill again, you go back up the hill again. And in the end, you're... You're nowhere. You don't know where you are. You you do the same pointless thing over and over until you sort of lose yourself. You're neither up nor down. So I, I don't know if they deliberately picked three sinister nursery rhymes that are about becoming broken and losing yourself, or if actually all nursery rhymes are actually really sinister mm. <laughs> when you think about them too much. But we've had uh, nursery rhymes throughout the series. They've been sort of odd musical cues and there have been hints of, of some of the themes throughout the episodes. What we're seeing now really crystallises these as a key aspect of the world of the village because they're literally being used allegorically, I think, for um, what's about to happen in the embryo room. And this idea that it's, you know, the village is designed to break people. And in the case of Degree Absolute, as we've discussed, the plan is for the village to break number six, but it's such a risky procedure that it is known that that may not be the way it ends up, and that can be reversed as well. 
Yeah, the, the way that number two goes and lies down on that, uh, what do you call them, those long chairs? It's not really a chair. Reclining. Well, yeah, reclining chair with exhaustion. In some respects, it's like uh, a new parent collapsing with exhaustion because their child won't go to sleep. <laughs> They've been up all night and they're just really angry and want them to go to sleep and are reciting nursery rhymes more out of anger than uh, than calmness. But also you get a, a beautiful visual um, duplication here where the camera pans back to where number six is, lying in bed with the lamp now completely down over his face, pulsating. But behind him, through the archway, you can see number two lying back on the chair and there is another lamp that is arched over the chair, facing down over him. And it's not down over his face, but they are they are visually twinned together in that shot. So we go to the next morning and number two wakes up and almost mirroring the opening credits where number six is usually there looking out over the village. Two looks out of the window and he sees uh, the waitress at the cafe setting up, which was the first thing that number six saw in arrival. He looks outside the village and the first place he goes is he, uh, he sees the waitress. Yeah, so number two is, is already mirroring the actions that we would normally see number six do. Yeah, and then what he does is he goes to wake up six. Yeah, and he looks like somebody who has not had a good night's sleep <laughs> at this point. But he, he goes over to number six, he removes the lamp from over his face and uh, wakes him up. And number six climbs out of bed with the uh, joy of a toddler. Yeah, I think is that... Um, is it boys and girls go out to play, playing over this? Mm. Yeah. And this idea of uh, of him wanting to go walkies, etc. Immediately we realise that the first aspect of degree absolute is the use of probably the hypnotic suggestion induced by what the supervisor was doing and the pulsating light and even the nursery rhymes as well. They're all designed to regress number six to... Uh, a childlike state that will begin the process of uh, tracking and monitoring number six through sort of an accelerated experience of his life in order to uh, track the aspects of his character that make him who he is and potentially reveal some of his secrets by by going back to the past and gaining his trust. So we then see number six being wheeled across the village and into the green dome in a wheelchair by the butler and he's eating an ice cream as he goes. And it's it's a, an odd visual image because he's not in a he's in a wheelchair rather than a pram, and it's almost like they're already linking um you know the the part in the seven ages of man where you have second childhood. Hmm. Because we've seen in previous episodes older members of the village being pushed in wheelchairs. So you wonder if something similar has happened to them. Have they had their minds regressed in some way? Mm. Have they been put through this? And I like the bit where uh, they're going down the ramp and it's clear that Angelo Muscat was probably having quite a lot of trouble gradually letting the wheelchair go down the ramp because he's obviously quite small and he's trying to hold hold the wheelchair and gradually let it descend. But the last bit, he kind of, kind of loses footing a little bit and the wheelchair does roll forward quite a lot. Yeah, because Patrick McGowan is uh, not a slight guy. <laughs> uh, so they, they push the wheelchair into the middle of the room. The butler descends 
through the floor in one of the other gaps, and number two, number six descend in the centre where the round chair would normally be. Mm. And so they're all in this system of underground tunnels. And I don't think that we've ever seen this part of the Green Dome before. No. As to what actually exists beneath number two's main room. I mean, we saw in uh, Free For All when number six runs out of the room and uh, through one of the side doors and ends up in some weird caverns where the people are worshipping Rover <laughs> and none, none of that entirely makes sense. But we've definitely never seen this part of the construction before. Yeah, which has a nice little conveyor belt <laughs> that allows them to move around. So they travel along a uh, conveyor belt for some reason. <laughs> um, I don't know why they can't just walk that bit to reach a door, which suggests that this room is called the embryo room that we've referenced earlier on in the episode. Uh, Six is still eating his ice cream, so he's still in that regressed state. And when the door opens and you see everything inside, immediately it's like you're entering a stage, a staged area. It looks like there are black curtains around the outside. There's nothing... Well, I mean, given the amount of set design that exists in the rest of the village, this room is bare except for various props and bits of furniture which are set out around the place, which are part of a a staging area for lots of activities. It doesn't feel like this is there for any other purpose than for this degree absolute where it's set up with, um, as an example, there's a cot in the middle, there's an easel, there's a swing, uh, there's a rocking horse, there's a seesaw. They're just kind of things scattered around in this almost like a workshop space where you would be preparing um, to put on a play or something. When they get in there, it is very much like the stage of a theatre production where you have random props on the stage. If you imagine that door opening and looking inside as like the curtain opening at the side of a play and you take in all of these weird things that are on the stage, the rocking horse, the seesaw, the wardrobe, the lights that come down that look a bit like spotlights as they hit the ground. And you would try to imagine what on earth am I about to see? What kind of play is this going to be? What's going to happen with all of these weird props that they've got in here? This is it. For better or worse, who knows? One week. One teeny weeny week, my boy. Neither of us can leave till death do us part. And I brought it on myself. Who knows? So already in the embryo room, the butler is already waiting there. And he is standing in a cot wearing some very unusual glasses, which basically have sort of a they look wooden, um, but they have like a central slit across the middle of them, a rectangular slit that you can look out of. And he's standing in this cot shaking a rattle in the start of one of these very sort of surreal moments, I think. Yeah, and there are things in the room that are already moving. The rocking horse is already rocking, but there's nobody on it. Same with the swing. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's very... Um, uh, if you've seen the woman in black... Mm. God, it, <laughs> oh, I don't have nightmares about that now. I've thought about that. But it's it's reminiscent of that, although obviously this came first. But there's something incredibly creepy about, well, first of all, about oversized childhood things, mm. but also about them moving on their own, because it you know it conjures up those sort of irrational fears that you had when you were a kid that your toys might come to life or that inanimate objects had some kind of um, you know, being to them, or maybe that was just me. <laughs> 
<laughs> Maybe that was just me. And on the easel, uh, this game of noughts and crosses, which has already been completed, um, yeah. that's also very strange because it makes you wonder if this room has been used before and that was part of a previous degree absolute. I don't know. Weirdly, although they're not supposed to be interrupted or interfered with at any point in this process, in the background you can see one of the red phones. Mm. And the red phones are always the hotline to the powers that be. So it does imply that if necessary, messages can get in and out of the room. Yeah, and it's strange because the only person who would be likely to do that would be the butler. But the mm. butler never says anything. No. So... um why it's why it's set up is kind of an intriguing aspect of um of the whole process because it almost feels like the village do keep tabs on what's going on they don't necessarily trust it to go according to plan potentially and they may have to intervene yeah so number two explains that for this one week this one teeny weeny week neither of them can leave and that till death do us part Mm, a line that will be echoed later on Mm. and then we get the first of the deliberately overt theatrical references here where number two starts quoting from Shakespeare's All the World's a Stage lines from As You Like It. All the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances and one man in his time plays many parts. And then he goes on through the seven ages of man. So you have the infant, the schoolboy, the lover the soldier, the judge, the pantaloon, and the senile old man. And two has also put on his own pair of these funky glasses as well, which immediately suggests that, uh, especially with him and the butler wearing them, that they might have some function in protecting them from what's going on, um, or marking them out in some way. So we begin to understand that the purpose of Degree Absolute is to move number six through these stages of life in order to try and understand something about him. And number two tells him that even when number six was a child, there must have been something in his brain that puzzles him and that he intends to find out what that is and then tune it and then that will make number six play the villagers game. In other words, if if you get someone when they're a child and convince them that life should be a certain way, it's then a lot easier for them to uh, go along with that when they're an adult. So he tells the butler uh, to stop playing with the rattle and immediately Six goes over and grabs it himself. Mm-hmm. And it's the way he grabs it and starts using it, it also shows that you know, he, is, he is confused, he's very childlike. He looks up at a spotlight which is shining down on him and the spotlight itself it's on Magoon for a lot of the episode, but gradually it transitions uh, in subject in order to reveal potentially who is gaining the upper hand during the degree absolute. Yeah, and number two writes on the blackboard what he intends to do, which is A, find missing link, B, put it together, and if he fails, C, bang. <laughs> Instead of bang, he could have just written pop. Because that is a motif that has been there right from the very beginning. Uh, if you think back to Arrival, they were already using uh, the music from Pop Goes the Weasel. It was featured in the original uh, end credits as well. Yeah. When you have that, that zoom out of the Earth and the universe and the word pop that appears on screen. So. Yeah. 
And later on, they are going to say pop a lot. Yeah. Not in a magnitude way, <laughs> just, just in a prisoner way. So now as the butler plays on the swing, number two informs number six that he is now his father. And asks him if there's anything that makes number six want to hate him. Hmm. So th- this is already getting very psychoanalytical. You know, he may as well be sitting on a couch saying, tell me about your mother. <laughs> <laughs> He, he takes them around the room as if they were going for a walk in the park and they go to sit on the seesaw and, I mean, you, you could see this as a, a metaphor for the balance of power shifting between mm-hmm. the two of them as, as the episode goes on. But they're singing a nursery rhyme, was it Seesaw Marjorie Daw, yeah. isn't it? Um, at which point they get stuck on the word master over and over again. So again, who is going to turn out to be the master in this situation? And it begins a um, a series of, of word association games as well. And mm. these feature a lot in the episode. Again, it's you know, there's a deep psychoanalytical tone to to what Degree Absolute is about. But I do wonder if McGowan himself, by using these things and showing how ineffective they are ultimately on him, you know, how he, he maybe is uh, somebody who, who rejects this kind of psychoanalysis himself. And it's critiquing it quite a lot by almost revealing them to be jargon that doesn't lead anywhere and maybe more useful for the person who is instigating them than, than for the patient in this situation. Yeah, and when number two again uses the word father, number six gets off the seesaw so abruptly mm. that it unbalances the whole thing. And uh, he then counters by offering brother mm. and number two comes back and offers friends. Um, so even at this point, number six is rejecting the idea that number two should be in a position of authority, that they you know, at first go for brother, which implies some kind of equality. But even with brothers, normally one is the older brother and one mm. is little brother. But when they eventually settle on friends, that is a, you know, two people who should be on the same level as each mm. other. And I wonder if this is also the first snippet of information that is being used by number two that relates to the reality of six's background so i do wonder if you know six had a brother and these are things which are actually being used but the way that also six gets upset at the reference to his father makes you wonder if there was some problem in that relationship as well so are these things there to deliberately provoke him um, but as another layer, are they directly giving us some hints of what number six's past was? I mean, certainly some of the events we see later on being staged, they could very well be aspects in a slightly warped fashion of uh, six's background before he came to the village. So then we move into the second age of man, which is the schoolboys creeping like snails <laughs> uh, going to school. And there's a costume change as the butler goes to the wardrobe and he, they must have done this lots of times before because the butler instinctively knows to go and get the the straw hat mm. and the cane and everything like that to go and fetch it as they begin to move into making number six grow up a little bit until he's a schoolboy in order to move his psyche onwards. But the villagers clearly, if that's true, they're using something and a strategy and an order of events that they've used before. And if that's true... You realise that the village never learns. It always does the same thing again and again and again. 
and when it meets somebody who is as uh, rebellious and original as number six, this is never going to work. And no matter how well planned it may be, it's just not going to work on him. And you can kind of see the seeds of that being sown now. So number two puts on a mortarboard and assumes the role of teacher. So we have a, a second authority figure in number six's life after trying to claim the role of his father and tells number six to uh, report to him at school off, uh, during the break. And the way they set up the office, and this is very theatrical, is that number two is simply sitting on the other side of a door that exists with no walls. Mm. So number six simply opens this door and walks through it. And as in the theatre, it requires everybody involved to understand that this is now a new room that they are entering into, even though it's all taking place in, in one space. You know, when you go to the theatre, everyone on the stage has to believe it's a new room, but also the audience has to go with them. They have to understand that in the language of theatre, that means they are now in a new place, where you don't actually need that much set decoration. A single door will do. You don't have to have walls and for to look like a, a schoolhouse. Mm. And so this is bringing that language of theatre into an episode of television because everybody involved in this number two number six is butler they all have to treat it as if this is a room but also the viewer has to understand that that is what they're doing and that is the stage language they're using and of course mcgowan was well versed in the stage um most notably in uh, in a very celebrated performance of uh, brand mm. which we'll talk about in a later podcast i mm. think um so he's bringing these sensibilities with him and it's just striking that he chooses to do this on television. Um, I mean, it's not just breaking the format of The Prisoner, but it's breaking the format of television itself by choosing to present this story in this manner and ask the viewer, a relatively big ask as well, to to use the language of theatre to understand these episodes. And straight away, number two is demanding a show of deference by ordering number six to take off his hat in his presence. Mm. So he's already trying to stamp his authority on him, which, you know, for a teacher-student relationship, it's a position of authority that has been imposed by the social structure, but which otherwise has no particular reason for existing. Mm. Um, you know, you wouldn't accept any random adult telling you to take your hat off but because society says right this is your teacher and you are going to learn from them and you have to do everything they say you know you don't get to choose your teacher you can have a great teacher or a terrible teacher but that's the teacher you've got and so everybody around you agrees that you have to defer to their authority yeah and the spotlight is clearly shining directly on McGowan the whole time during this so he is the one who is in the weaker position of this power play being engineered and the point of this whole thing in this in this role play is that number two is demanding to know who was talking in class mm. and uh, six refuses to say and ultimately two calls it cowardice for um you know for not revealing who it was um, he says he does know who it was but he's not going to say who it is six counters that by essentially arguing that it's not cowardice it's actually honor to keep that secret and also that he's not a rat as well. Yes, which number two takes immediate offence to. Because mm. he says to number six that he's a fool, and number six agrees, yes sir, not a rat. But number two seems to take it as if number six has just called him a rat. Mm. 
Yeah, and his angry response, it starts to bring into question number two's feelings about himself here. Because you wonder if those words rattle him because he feels that maybe he has let himself down or shown some weakness by working for number one. You know, maybe he does feel like he is a rat in some way. It it, it feeds into that slightly paranoid line earlier on when he's on the phone to presumably number one, where he says, I'm not an inmate. Mm. And he's worried about Rover being present. He feels paranoid and going into this. And, and you wonder if that's the right state of mind for a number two to be in if they're about to enter degree absolute. So those cracks are, are forming in him a little bit. And I like there's that shot where... It shows Magoon where he, you know, there's a close-up on him where he says, not a rat. And his eyes and his whole demeanour suddenly don't appear to be those of the regressed child for that moment. It looks like he is sort of aware of himself. And so that threat does feel more of a threat because it doesn't come from the childish number six. It comes from somebody who is seemingly, even in this short flash, Entering into the game with number two. Yeah, because what number two is trying to get number six to do is not to reveal something about himself, but to reveal something about somebody else. Mm. But whether or not you would agree to do that does reveal something about your own character. Mm. Now, number two's main job is to observe, or it seems to be, is to observe what the villagers do and report on it to the powers that be. So in some respects, that makes them the snitch Hmm. you know if if there really is no difference in hierarchy between number two and number six if they are equal if number two is as much of a prisoner as number six is then number two reporting back to the powers that be as to what's going on is really no different to number six revealing who was talking in class and so when number six says i'm not going to tell you because i'm not a rat and number two immediately projects it onto himself, feeling that number six is there by calling him a rat because there is some connection between what number two does and what mm. number six is refusing to do. But instead, number six just again proclaims that uh, he's not a rat, he's just a fool. Mm. And it, you then get number two giving him a bit of a speech about what civilization is. That society is people working together and the lone wolf belongs in the wilderness. And you know, number six mustn't grow up to be a lone wolf. And this is all starting to get to the heart of, of of what the prisoner is, that you have this man who has decided to make himself a lone wolf from everything by refusing to, uh, to play his part anymore, mm. I suppose. He's not playing his role anymore by resigning. Mm. But also you could argue that what number two views as being a lone wolf and being um, isolated from everyone else Number six views as simply being individual because he believes that everyone should be individual. Mm. So the village feels that 99% of the people are are the village and number six is like holding out against being part of that. Number six probably views it as the fact that everyone needs to take responsibility for themselves and be themselves. And you can still be part of a community but you don't have to lose your identity in order to be part of something bigger you don't have to conform in order to be part of a civilized society you have to 
exert free will or indeed be allowed to exert free will. And those are the things which he seems to be rallying against. It's just reminded me now of that classic scene from Life of Brian, where Brian's at the window and there's the crowd outside who are calling for him. And he says, you're all individuals. And they reply, yes, we are all individuals. <laughs> and that guy says, I'm not. <laughs> Society. Yes, Society is a place where people exist together. Yes, sir. That is civilization. Yes, sir. The lone wolf belongs to the wilderness. Yes, sir. You must not grow up to be a lone wolf. No, sir. You must conform. Yes, sir. It is my sworn duty to see that you do conform. Yes, sir. Number two is not happy that he hasn't managed to uh, to win number six over at this point, uh, so tells him that he will take six of the best. And there's an interesting pause after um, number two says you will take six because so the complete phrase is you will take six of the best but the pause there causes number six himself to have a strange moment where he seems to recognize the number it doesn't do anything to him other than make him kind of wonder what it's about but it but that's a theme that becomes recurrent later on and has already been exhibited where the supervisor went to five and again and again and again and then you know the fact that six is always refusing to accept that number it's a number which is starting to be ingrained in him in some way and he knows it means something but he doesn't associate it with himself it's just nice that it's starting to reveal that six is not fully i think under the control of the village here he's able to to have moments where he remembers what is going on although he can't really do anything with that yeah so when number six protests that he's not guilty number two ups the punishment to 10 <laughs> but uh number six replies that he'd rather have 12 <laughs> so that he can remember so even at that very early age he's clearly showing the, the stubbornness and insubordination that uh, will become his trademark as an individual when he grows up yeah and it might just be the blu-ray version of this but I love the fact that as this episode proceeds, you can see the amount of sweat building up on Leo McKern. <laughs> it's interesting that he is trying to go through the stages, but he's trying to crack him as early as possible. It's just, I mean, it's, you know, I think we've talked about how nice this set is. But, the, you know, you just see that he is a guy who is under pressure and trying to remain cool and maybe already aware that maybe it's not going as easily as he would have hoped. And I don't mean that necessarily just as a number two versus number six, but I mean that in terms of the intensity of the performances that they have to put in here, because I think that's what's often spoken about is is how this episode took its toll on, on Leo McKern. Feels almost like if it was done as a play, it would have been a very, very intense two-hander to put on. I know it's done over multiple takes, it's television, etc., but... This is really one person against another, and they are two very big characters, and very, you know, they are forces of nature going up against each other. And you can see quite nicely how the balance of power is always shifting. It's not as sudden as it seems towards the end. There's immense pressure that even a regressed number six is putting on number two throughout the whole uh, the whole thing and the fact that number two is trying to remain calm but but clearly isn't i think it's a real testament to how good mckern's performance is in this so then we move on to graduation day where number six is about to leave school and 
Number two is still playing the role of teacher, but he's sitting up on a almost like a bit of a throne, hmm. um, up on a ledge, presiding over the proceedings of graduation day. And next to him is that weird wooden toy with all the spokes that we first saw in Arrival at the Labour Exchange, um, the one that number six knocks down. Is it the same one, or is it like something similar? Well, it looks like it's built from the same components, but yeah. has been put together in a yeah. different configuration. Yeah. But uh, given how tight a budget they were on, I think it probably is made of the same things. <laughs> Just whatever they had laying about in the prop room from before, they're going to whack it in there. So number two, as the uh, well, sort of headmaster figure, really, starts talking about uh, what a joyous moment it is. The number six is the prize pupil. He's about to be uh, launched into adulthood and they all wish him well as they look back on all the ups and downs they've gone through in his life. And he starts talking about how pleased he is that number six has managed to uh, control his rebellious spirit, which he clearly hasn't at all. Maybe number two thinks that if he says it enough, it might turn out to be true. But when he asks number six if he has anything to say, six just says that he has nothing to say at all. But then he jumps in with a slightly off-the-cuff question designed to throw him, I suppose, which is number two, asking number six directly, why did you resign? Which is an odd question to be asking someone who's just graduated from school, because if you were progressing number six through his life, he hasn't even got the job yet, mm. never mind resign. But maybe he's trying to catch him off guard. Maybe he thinks that he's done enough digging into number six's psyche at this point that he can make him cough up the answer to the question he asked again why did you resign and number six asked well from what hmm. resign from what and it's unclear if that's him not knowing or if it's him being completely insubordinate and, and trying to prod him as well um i think you can read it one aspect of this episode from number six's perspective and the other aspect is mcgowan's perspective um, it just seems like he's deliberately playing with him here a little bit because it ends with a very uh, telling back and forth about the nature of what he may have done before he was taken to the village. So these reference to secrets and the fact that something that he knew was top secret and indeed specifically a state secret. So explicitly referencing a former career that involved either being a spy or access to that kind of information or gathering that kind of information. That's a, and that's a theory which is built upon a little bit later in the episode with all the references to what POP may stand for. I think at this point, when their faces are very close together on screen, it's the first time that it looks like the spotlight is on McKern rather mm. than McGowan, mm. which implies that there's a, a small shift in the balance of power here mm where number six is getting away from number two a little bit. Because if number two is desperate for this answer, and number six has the power to withhold it, then that means that number six does have all the power in that situation, if the answer is is ultimately what number two needs. Yeah, and the way it's framed as well, you see six actually sort of towering over him a little bit. So although uh, McKern has McGowan by the scruff of his collar, it's McGowan bearing down on him in that situation. Yeah, so he, he keeps grilling him, why did you resign, why did you resign? And number six loses it at that point and punches number two to the ground and they start grappling on the floor. And the butler, very nonchalantly, 
walks over to the wardrobe, gets out of club, wanders back over at his own pace, and uh, smacks them six over the back of the head. <laughs> He's not in any rush to do it. Yeah, it's it's not as if he is doing things in order to aid number two. It's almost like he's he's there as the village observer and he's there to keep the degree absolute process going. And if it gets out of hand, he's there to step in. But it's not necessarily to support one side or the other. Indeed, it's just to break up something that would have derailed the process a little bit. Yeah, and as number six lies unconscious on the floor, um, face up, the spotlight is directly on him mm. as he lies there, which is quite nice. So two and the butler pick him up and move him to a table where they've got a portable version of one of those lamps mm. that they lower over his head, presumably to um, re-impress upon him the hypnosis to, to send him back under again because he was starting to get a bit too fighty. <laughs> And as he does, number two says to the butler that uh, he's beginning to quite like number six. (laughs) (laughs) And it it seems like a bit of a sort of throwaway comic line at the time that he's starting to like him, you know, now that he's resisting the process so much. But at the same time, later on, we're going to hear number six say how number two knew that the only way to break number six would be to try and get his respect. But what we're really seeing here is that number six is now getting number two's respect. So already the process is beginning to work both ways. Clearly recovered from being clubbed by the butler, <laughs> uh, Six is now on a rocking horse and number two is trying to get him to say his ABCs. So he asks him to repeat, you know, A, B, C, D, E. And it's counted by number six, who is counting one, two, three, four, five. But crucially, he never gets him to count to six when he's doing it. So uh, again, we have this this sort of mental block in six where he can get to five and he either cannot or refuses to say six. I think it's more the latter, but it's that power play that comes from number two trying to get six to say something and acknowledge that number and number six himself actively resisting it and then this causing it to wind up number two quite a lot yeah so he he gets so wound up that number two begins to repeat what he wants number six to say which is six 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 which is a little bit satanic in retrospect (laughs) Uh, but six won't do it and just keeps repeating five 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 and so again you get an echo of what was going on in the control room earlier when they were initially brainwashing six where they were repeating five 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 again and again and this is a, a hallmark of the theatre of the absurd in general, that you get um, almost nonsense dialogue and repetition without context, where things don't necessarily have to mean anything or to make sense or even to be proper sentences in order for you to get a feel of what is happening within the scene. 
So if you think of, you know, work by Pinter or Genet or Beckett, where you have characters who often have, well, there are often plays in which you have only two people or only four people, where an awful lot of the dialogue that goes back and forth between them is either nonsense on the face of it, or in the absence of any context doesn't seem to mean anything. And that the, the absurdity of the exchanges between them are really... The, the, and the absurdity of the situation they find themselves in is really the absurdity of life and the, the impossibility of, of understanding anything. So a lot of them happen in a single location, which is what we have here for most of the episode. They they happen on a, a quite simple set where there aren't that many things going on other than the characters who are usually trapped together in circumstances that either they don't understand or that they can't escape from. So either something enormous has happened and now they are existing in the aftermath of it, or they are waiting around for a thing to happen that never actually seems to come, and everybody seems frozen and trapped in that space and time. And I I find it fascinating that you have that coupled with so many Shakespearean references in this. Um, because there's some more Shakespeare to come, which I'm going to get into later, uh, because I do like my tangents, especially if they are theatre related. <laughs> <laughs> so the uh, exchange of sixes and fives carries on. Notably, number two uses two phrases, you know, six of one, six of one, half a dozen of the other. You know, these phrases that, that become synonymous with the show later on, they start to be seeded here, actually. And it changes again when number six responds to that by saying pop goes the weasel Hmm. this discussion of pop goes the weasel then turns into a a series of things that the acronym pop could stand for Hmm. so protect other people people's own protection Hmm. and they keep exchanging these ideas between them again and again with number two demanding to know why and every time he, he asks why actually answer it by saying Pop goes a weasel, but he. But when he's not being asked, that's when he explains what uh, he believes pop may actually mean. And this idea of protecting other people again might tie into two things: one, what his job was before, but also it may be a very subtle hint at what an underlying aspect of his resignation was, which was namely either the role of protecting other people becoming something that was compromised, or the fact that he he maybe did something that didn't protect other people, which went against his principles in some way. So he may have been forced to do something that uh, he didn't believe in. But it's interesting that they bring the acronym up and expand it from the nursery rhyme world of the prisoner, where it's been used so frequently to actually explicitly stating what this might actually mean to number six, even in this slightly confused state. They've clearly regressed him back to to early childhood again and are going through the process again because we we get this rocking course scene and then it jumps forward to uh when he seems to be a what sort of older teenager Mm. um who's uh boxing and number two is his boxing coach and number two keeps encouraging him to fight he's saying you know you're you're the champ boy you can do it boy swings are for kids boy hit me boy hit me Um, He's almost goading him and coaching him at the same time and getting number six to 
become violent, but to channel that violence in a way that the coach is ordering him to do. Mm. And his threat of actually killing him is there to is there to really make Six lose his control completely, to make the threat so so serious that he will maybe let his inhibitions down a little bit and become violent in this situation. But I also wonder if it's to do with, again, going back to his past, something to do with a situation where he did become violent when he shouldn't have been. Because I think it's only this number two in The Chimes of Big Ben who really had that long discussion of what was in his file. So he knows a lot about him and why he would choose to provoke him by trying to inspire some violent instinct in him is very unusual, given that from what we've seen of number six, he tends to stay away from violence if he can avoid it. Although he often gets into his weekly ITC fisticuffs. So, yeah. <laughs> and then we see him in, in what looks like the corner of a boxing ring with his back to the corner mm. and the butler is fanning him with a mm. towel as if he was in a fight. But it's not a boxing ring at all. It's the cart mm. that they've put I him like back that in. Shot, yeah. He's still saying pop and looking up at the spotlight. And uh, number two is is still trying to uh, to to get him to say more. But he's just saying pop goes the weasel. But he also believes that this is a moment where Six might be weak enough to actually be ready to reveal why he resigned in the first place. So he asks him again, you know, why did you resign? Again, going back to the boxing speak, he says, you're the champ, the champ. And he's he feels like he's breaking through. And there's a moment when Six is kind of looking at his fist, but he's still completely resilient and he's not going to reveal anything at the moment. And it's those moments where you see number two being so frustrated by it. And as he comes closer and closer, that's the moment when uh, Six chooses to, to hit him in the face again. <laughs> so it's clear he's, you know, he's being broken but he he can never be fully taken apart he can never be deconstructed so he can be pushed a lot but ultimately he's always able to grasp onto his sense of self and realize that even when he's being controlled in this manner he doesn't have to reveal anything and then he lashes out and kind of breaks two's concentration as well by by hitting him in the face and then we jump to another sport which is that along with boxing something that we saw in the schizoid man which is a a fencing match between the two of them although again number two is seems to be taking on the role of a tutor because they're giving him feedback about his fencing technique to me and this is probably just completely personal but fencing itself is intrinsically linked with the theater because of the prominent role that it plays in the end of hamlet Mm. i can't I can't see people fencing. Even at the Olympics, I see people mm. fencing, and I just think that of Hamlet and Laertes at the end of, uh, the end of Hamlet. No spoilers if you haven't seen Hamlet. <laughs> but because that's so often held up as you know, the, almost the play to end all plays, and a play that is itself about playing and acting, mm. and has become synonymous with theatre to the point where you know a, a dude looking miserable and holding a skull could mean both Hamlet, but it could also just mean an actor. Mm. It's uh, that for me, those two go together, particularly in a an episode where there are so many Shakespearean references and theatrical references. Mm. Do you think it works well on the stage just because it's a means to portray a fight that actually has a tremendous amount of subtext to it? Mm. You can have shifts in balance that are still um, between 
two people who are kept apart by by weapons. They're not actually physically interacting, so they can still talk, they can still damage the other person, but there's actually no reason for one or the other person to be immediately eliminated from it until you know until you know a mask is removed or somebody actually gets stabbed you could have i mean literally you can be sparring verbally as well as um you know with your uh, swords as well mm. and number two says to number six kill 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 mm. and at that point number six disarms number two mm. by uh, hitting his sword out of his hand and uh and, and effectively ending the fight without killing him mm. so when number two takes off his fencing mask and again orders number six to kill him i'm not sure if, if at this point he's he's just trying to get number six to at the very least just obey and order any order mm. and to goad him into doing it because the, i mean the swords have um the little bobbles on the mm. end so you can't actually kill somebody with it but then he takes the uh little bobble off so he has a, a sword uh, unbated as they would say in Hamlet. <laughs> and number two keeps at it. As number six holds the sword to his face, number two is goading him, saying, no, you're too scared, you won't slip over the threshold, go on, kill me, kill, kill, kill. Uh, but instead he just stabs at his... Uh, well, he, I think he gets the fabric of his shirt. Well, no, I think he actually gets his arm. Because mm. it bleeds, yeah. Yeah. And rather than asking six why he resigned... He directly says your resignation was cowardice, wasn't it? Mm. He's trying to just goad him the whole time. And he's willing, he's actually willing, I think, to take a hit in order to find out the reasons for the resignation. So there's a situation where he's putting himself in physical danger in the hope that he might get the answer. So that's definitely some desperation creeping in as well. But when he gets sort of nicked with the blade, Six does say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And for that moment as well, you realise that he, he has an aversion intrinsically to violence, which I suppose is there uh, most prominently in Living in Harmony when he refuses to, to carry a gun as well. He doesn't, he doesn't believe in arming himself to carry out whatever job he has to do. So maybe again, going back to why he resigned, it's clear to Number two, that there must be an element of being forced to arm himself some way, which is why he's using it to uh, kind of incite these emotions in, in number six and make him uh, uh, reveal why he resigned as well. We now see number six grow up some more and he's back in his famous piped blazer again <laughs> and he's having a shave. So we've clearly had some days past that he feels the need to uh, get rid of some stubble. And we see number two taking on the role of a bank manager who is interviewing number six for a job. And again, this is a slightly autobiographical thing because I believe Patrick McGowan did work at a bank <laughs> at one point. And they're having a nice dinner with wine and, and food, presumably cooked by the butler, in this weird little trailer with uh, a wall of bars across it. It's almost like a mini studio flat with a little kitchen and a table like you would find in a, the back of a, a caravan or something <laughs> like that. But it's embedded into the room. And they're holding this job interview there. And number two wants Six to uh, hurry up because he needs to meet the managing director of the bank. And so uh, Six gets up and gets to a little toy car and drives around uh, the floor for a little bit, sort of does a little loop, and then arrives again at one of these stage doors 
which he walks through to again see uh, number two waiting behind. But this time, number two is portraying the role of the managing director of this bank. Yeah, so at first he tells number six that he's got the job, but just as number six is leaving, he calls him back in and begins to explain that the job isn't really a job at a bank, that this is actually a, a bigger job, a secret job, and that the job at the bank is essentially a, a cover. So it's, it's, be- it's beginning to make it explicitly clear that Six was involved in some kind of intelligence work and that whatever cover job he had wasn't really what he was doing. Indeed, this may have actually been the cover job that was there. I mm. mean, uh, you know, although that doesn't really fit with what we saw in Do Not Forsake Me, oh My Darling, I suppose, if you want to be very canon about everything we've seen. But I like the idea of them, again, hinting very strongly that this is how he was recruited into the spy trade. It's the most explicit I think we've ever seen it uh, being addressed as a as a form of profession for number six. And even six seems kind of excited by the whole thing. He finds, you know, he's maybe at the start of his career, it seemed like quite a thrilling job to be part of. It was it was the excitement of being a spy and maybe actually being undercover as well. Maybe those are the elements that would have absorbed him a little bit too much and overtook him and maybe compromised his moral code or made him worry about compromising his code to the point where he realised he would have to resign in order to, you know, leave it behind and not go too far down that road. So number six leaves the meeting again on a little scooter and he's pulled over by the butler who's now dressed as a policeman in the sort of traditional bobby uniform Hmm. with the, the hat. And he gets pulled over for speeding and winds up in the dock in front of the judge, who is number two, wearing a, a big judge's wig. Mm. Foreshadowing Rumpole of the Bailey by some time. <laughs> <laughs> and a nice little touch when the butler is pulling over number six is that we have all the sounds of sirens and the streets, etc., which is really reminiscent of uh, the tape recorder that was used in the Chimes of Big Ben. So the sounds that were being used to make number six believe he had really returned to London and they were playing that tape recorder in the wardrobe to make it seem like he was there. It seems like it's the same tape being played again, which is a nice callback to the means which uh, the village uses in order to create illusions of, of things. Now, obviously there they had to stage the whole room because number six was of sound mind. Here he's been regressed. So everything that we're seeing in the embryo room are things which are there to suggest and trigger these feelings, but they don't need to actually be robust visual or aural signals that will make him believe um, he's in a specific place. And uh, he's accused of driving too fast, but weirdly he's also accused of killing people. Hmm. But then the, the judge keeps changing the terms of exactly what he's accusing number six of you know he says you were driving at great speed and number six says yes but nobody got hurt he says well yes but they could have done how many innocent people could have been killed because you were driving so fast in a restricted zone yeah just to add to the confusion of the whole situation again they're they're playing with that wooden structure as well and sort of i think it's the butler who's twirling the cogs occasionally and it just it just adds to the you know the shifting face of who number six is facing in this uh in this court case he's being charged with something but the charges are unclear and they keep shifting and there's nothing that you can really do about it um you just have to kind of wait it out almost it's that unjust nature which is making six become quite agitated as well 
because he knows that whatever's happening, it's not fair. And fairness is a fundamental aspect of his moral code and, and again, feeds into the idea potentially of, uh, of why he resigned. A first number six sort of stutteringly suggests that he was speeding because he was on some kind of top secret work mm. and that he can't say what the secret work was and is becoming more and more agitated that the judge wants to know what the secret work was, otherwise he's going to find him guilty. And then number two immediately segues into uh, testing him to state alternating even numbers. <laughs> and he says two, four, and then jumps to eight because he still won't say six. And the judge is trying to get him to say six, but he won't do it. And the spotlight's on him and he seems weary and exhausted. But instead of six, he just keeps saying five. And then at one point he claims that he is five. And immediately two says, no, you're six, basically. Mm. Um, so he's explicitly not just saying, you know, say the number six, but telling him that he is number six. Um, a number which six himself has has refused to acknowledge as being a real label for him in the world of the village. Yeah, so the judge finds him 20 units hmm. and uh, tells number six that he's not allowed to appeal when he asks to. And when number six says that he can't pay the fine... Uh, Number two essentially says that he's a member of the village and is therefore a unit of society. Hmm. But this does also break the illusion of the role play as well, because they've explicitly brought in the concept of work units from the world of the village into this as well, which is not necessarily something that he would have been aware of during this stage of his life, if you want to uh, view this as a literal representation of, uh, of a past experience that number six went through. Yeah, so having found him guilty of contempt of court, they give him six days in jail and forcibly pull him into the trailer and close the bars as if they were locking him up. And you get another shot of um, Gouin through the bars like mm. we get at the end of every episode and also that we had in Living in Harmony. Mm. I know you. You're smart. In my mind, in my mind, you're smart. Why did you resign? Why did you resign? Whatever you are. A fool. What? Don't. Yes. No, don't. Yes, an idiot. No, I'll kill you. I'll die. You're dead. So they leave him in the trailer for a while, and number two seems to take a nap on one of the tables, which does not look that comfy. And uh, the butler wakes him up by tapping him awake, and he looks absolutely exhausted, mm. which I think is probably not even acting on behalf of Liam again <laughs> at that point. Probably was knackered. And he wearily goes over to the trailer to ask number six through the bars. He almost seems like he knows it's futile at this point, asking him again why he resigned. And number six, who's still handcuffed on the other side, says that it was for peace. Mm. And then when pressed again on what he means by that, he says that it was for peace of mind. Mm. So that's talking about how too many people know too much and that he knows too much and he knows too much about number two. And he accuses number two of being an enemy so I suppose if you want to extrapolate from this, it does feel like number six may have in some part of his mind an awareness of the village and who runs it, um, which may have actually been something that, that came from his former profession as well. It's some awareness of, uh, of what was going on here, but he may not know that when he's of sound mind the rest of the time. And when number six provokes number two so much that number two again threatens to kill him. He says, I'll kill you. And number six says, I'll die. 
uh, just very matter-of-factly, and number two advice to that, you're dead, which uh, in in some ways reminds me of in Dance of the Dead, when number two is a, effectively telling number six that to the outside world he is dead, because mm. they've made everyone believe that he is dead, so he may as well accept that he's dead to everyone. So number six runs to the uh, kitchen, it's like a proper 1960s kitchenette in there takes out a knife and hands it to number two and dares number two to kill him and and this is like a a reversal of the end of the fencing scene where number six was holding the sword to number two and number two was goading him you know kill kill and now they're starting to swap places it's number two that is holding the knife and number six who is saying go on then kill me yeah. Kill me. And number two can't do it. Yeah, so he opens the doors and uh, holds the knife to him and number six falls on the floor rather theatrically and says, you know, go on, kill me lying down. Mm-hmm. And at this point, number two tells him that, uh, well, he tells number six that he killed during the war. And we're about to see a section where they are uh, playing a sort of bombing raid um, during World War Two, and a lot of people have talked about how this doesn't entirely make sense because Number Six doesn't seem to be old enough to have been able to be in in active service during World War Two, given the age that he seems to be in in uh, in the prisoner. But there's a, there was an interesting theory that I was reading in the Fallout Guide by Fiona Moore and Alan Stevens, where they theorised that it's actually Number Two who was a, a bomber fighter in World War Two, And that when he's talking about you killed during the war, he's actually talking to himself. He, he, he can't do it. He can't kill number six in this instance. But he says you killed during the war. He's almost talking to himself mm. by reminding himself that he did kill during the war. And that the, the scene that we're about to see where they are on the bombing run and then when number six is being held captive, they're actually beginning to recreate things from number two's life Mm. rather than number six's life because the balance is shifting instead of number six being the subject under scrutiny now it's turning into number two being the subject under scrutiny and the balance of power is moving but it still strikes me as odd that number two tells number six you killed for fun and number six counters by saying for peace again because to me, that implies that he is talking about number six. And also, I would wonder whether this is more of a, a slip in continuity in years than it is something which necessarily can only be interpreted as being about number two rather than number six. Although I think it's kind of interesting that now you've said that, looking at the following scene when they're role-playing the bombing experience, it could very well be the case that that is a fragment from number two's past rather than number six's. Yeah, so we now move into the bombing scene where the tape recorder is uh, counting down numbers once again. So more strings of numbers that don't seem to mean anything. And number two, number six have got uh, kind of pilot's headgear on and they're sitting on a bench. And, and again, it's a very theatrical device. You can take something as simple as a bench and turn it into an aeroplane just through what they're communicating to the audience. Yeah, and use the butler to have a little smoke machine as well. (laughs) (laughs) 
and the, the spotlight is shifting constantly across both of them mm. as this goes on, um, seemingly in order to uh, recreate searchlights looking for the plane. But also it, again, suggests that the balance of power is moving, that the spotlight is shifting onto to each of them in turn. So during the role play, the plane is hit and they bail out. And we cut to a scene which again set within the within the trailer where number two appears and pretends to be a German interrogator, placing six in the role of a prisoner of war. So I originally thought that, again, this may be just a continuity thing about the years and and when number six may have been available to be in the war as like a, you know, an RAF pilot or something. But it seems striking that he is using the POW situation here. Now, as we're talking about the episode, it's weird because I'm wondering whether this is a real experience which is being used by uh, number two, or indeed if this is just a role-playing element that involves a power play between number two in the position of authority as the interrogator and number six as the POW here. And it's just to create a power balance. It doesn't actually represent a real a real event that took place. Yes, and... This has taken place inside the trailer and number two comes in to interrogate him and at first number six is on the floor and he's laughing and saying zero um, and telling number two to go and he says zero a lot. Hmm. And then as he gets up and moves towards the door, he starts counting through numbers again and this time he actually says six. He asks again and he says eight, six, four, two, one, zero. So he's suddenly able to say the number six. But before that can go any further, uh, he says he's hungry and he wants supper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and his whole body language seems to change in this moment where he just waltzes out through the door in the bars into the main part of the room, completely breaking with the role play in the scene that they were doing. No longer thinking of himself in the position of a, a prisoner of war and just quite nonchalantly wandering out and declaring that he wants some supper. But interestingly, he's got his stubble back again, so more time must have passed <laughs> yeah, yeah, within, the, uh, within the seven days of the degree absolute. Yeah, but he's starting to regain himself again after everything that he's been through. He's starting to come back to his own identity. You chose this method because you knew the only way to beat me was to gain my respect. And then I would confide. I hope that you would come to trust me. This is a recognized method used in psychoanalysis. The patient must come to trust his doctor totally. Sometimes they change places. Which is essential in extreme cases. Also a risk or grave risk. If the doctor has his own problems. That is why the system is known as degree absolute. It's one or the other of us. Why don't you resign? (laughs) You're very good. (laughs) You're very good at it. (laughs) And now we see the balance of power completely shifting because in the next scene, it's number two who is lying on the bench with the spotlight on him Hmm. and number six standing over him and saying to him, you knew the only way to beat me was to gain my respect. And and that by gaining his respect, he would also gain his trust. And he would eventually confide in him the reason why he resigned. And they explicitly start talking about psychoanalysis at this point. 
where he says that uh, sometimes the doctor and the patient change places, particularly if the doctor has issues of their own. <laughs> Which again reflects the relevance of the analogy of prisoners and warders that we heard repeated from the episode Free For All earlier in this episode, because essentially that's almost the shift we're seeing here. The balance of power is completely being flipped here. And we're seeing almost completely from now on number two in the subservient position. So he he starts trying to uh, reassert his authority. He tells the butler, who's playing something rather sad on the organ, to play <laughs> something cheerful. And uh, he runs into the kitchen and starts pouring drinks for the two of them. I notice the butler never gets a drink. <laughs> I would feel pretty put out if I was him. And uh, he's trying to be genial. It's almost like he's trying to shake off what he must feel is happening. Yeah, And these are neat spirits they're drinking. And we've seen before that in the village it's very hard to get real alcohol as well. Yes. And I love the little moment where number six asks him if there are no additions because he's so sick of getting drugged every time he takes a drink. <laughs> <laughs> and then weirdly number two starts showing number six around the room. Um, explaining that it's called the embryo room and explaining what they use it for. And the spotlight follows him around the room as he does this. And he's kind of like, he's not dancing, but he's kind of slightly lost in himself, isn't he, as he's wandering around. Mm. And uh, it's interesting that Six follows him, completely controlled, observing everything he's doing. And occasionally he enters the spotlight, but he enters it whilst it's pointing directly at number two. Again, suggesting that this is the, uh, you, know, you know, this you know, this is like the, the final moment of their confrontation. I think it's building up to this, and and the tables have turned, and Six is very much now about to do his final moves, essentially on number two. Yeah. So he he walks up behind him and puts his hand on number two's shoulder, and says that the the final stage of the seven ages of man is a second childishness and mere oblivion. <laughs> It's almost like he's pushing number two onwards into moving through the, the later stages. Mm. And then number two takes him over to uh, to the door and shows him that it's closed. What's nice here is then at that point, it becomes apparent to both six and number two that there's only a few minutes left of the degree absolute. Yeah, so he pulls the curtains away from the door. Again, it's all very theatrical. And you see a, an ominous red clock on the wall counting down. And number two says that they're uh, completely alone. No one's going to intrude upon them. And states that the uh, door is uh, encased in the finest steel. The finest wobbly steel. Yes. <laughs> he knocks on the door as if to prove how sturdy it is. And the whole thing wobbles. It's wonderful. And then he shows him the clock and uh, is very alarmed to see that there's only five minutes left and starts frantically uh, twiddling with various dials. And then two goes over to the trailer again and makes a reference to how when the time is up, it would be interesting to see whether they're still there, which makes six ask whether there's a way out or if something is mobile. And it turns out that the trailer itself, although it looks like it's just parked on this stage in the embryo room, it is actually mobile. It's completely self-contained. It has food for six months. <laughs> I don't know if that means that, that Degree Absolute can actually take that long. Because at the beginning of the episode, he felt that a week was too short. Mm. So maybe it can take a very, very long time for it to take place. Um, but whilst Two is uh, 
sort of showing him around and explaining everything, Six remains on the outside, slams the door shut and locks him inside. And then number six takes the key out of the door, having locked it, and hands it to the butler who wanders over. And the butler doesn't do anything to suggest that this is wrong. I mean, again, he's acting completely impartially, but this is how the balance of power has shifted. And he uh, just collects the key. Yeah, so and, and number two laughs and says uh, he thinks you're the boss now, to which number six replies that number one is the boss. Hmm. And number two simply retorts, I'm number two, open the door. And he's asking, you know, he's asking the butler to obey him still, but that's not happening anymore. So there's only three minutes left. When number two says that number six is a fool, he, he calls back to the schoolboy scene earlier and says, yes, a fool, not a rat. Hmm. So then with two minutes left to go, number six calls the butler back over who unlocks the door. Yeah, and, and again, the butler is listening to number six, not number two. And he, he tells number two that he's free, to which he replies, no, I'm number two, implying that number two is not free mm. at all. And, and they, they pace up and down the bars on either side. It's, it's almost like uh, two caged animals pacing up and down. Sizing each other up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and there's number six is counting down these last few minutes. And number two is repeatedly asking him why he resigned again and again. But he doesn't really get a conclusive answer. Yeah, so and he starts going back to Humpty Dumpty. And they start exchanging lines of all the king's horses and all the king's men. And number six finishes, couldn't put Humpty together again, implying that it's number two who has ultimately had a great fall and has broken apart. And no one is going to be able to put him back together again. And that's indeed what this whole process has been about. It's about breaking him down into his component parts and then trying to rebuild him again in a manner that is compliant and willing to discuss his resignation. In reality, you can't do that. Certainly not with number six. He can't, you know, he's not, he's not simply the sum of his parts. He's more complex than that. And that seems to be the fatal flaw that the village has made throughout in their attempts to to break him and get answers from him. Yeah, so with only one minute to go, number two starts to panic. He starts um, running around the room. He's crawling. He's grabbing at the furniture. The spotlight is on him the whole time. Mm. He's absolutely desperate. And number six is just counting down the last 60 seconds. Too late. Eight. Seven. Six. Six. Die, six. Die. Uh, die. Die. Three. Die. As number two becomes more and more desperate, explaining that there is still time. Yeah, he still feels he can he can do it, he can win. But he's almost pleading. I mean, he's got his hands clasped together and he really wants to, to know the answer. Almost to save himself, because he's put himself on the line here. And although he was quite confident about understanding the level of risk in Degree Absolute at the very beginning of the episode, when he was talking to presumably number one, it's clear that he didn't really anticipate that it would end up like this and again it's that hubris that a number two shows that is their downfall only this time it's a it's a personal thing that's happened because usually the number two orchestrates a plan on behalf of the higher-ups through other people there's lots of layers between them and and number six in this case it's a number two believing that they should be able to intervene and carry things out themselves and maybe the village knows that it's too dangerous to do it so they don't usually do it like this but he 
went into this believing that although there was a risk involved, he must have done it knowing that he had a chance to break six himself. And it's nice how in the last few minutes, it's all falling apart. I mean, everything has gotten away from number two. He, he, you know, he lost track of time. He's lost track of the control he had. And now the balance of power is so shifted that it's clear that it cannot be reverted. And six is, is completely in control of these last few minutes. Yes, and Amity desperately asks one last time. And uh, number six replies, ask on, ask yourself, which seems to be the moment where the almost the transference of identity between the two of them becomes complete. That if number two wants to understand why number six resigned, he needs to ask himself because he is now number six, he is the prisoner. And as he runs into the trailer and grabs his drink again, and the last few seconds tick away from ten, nine, eight, seven, six, as he gets to six, he repeats six, die, six, and you hear the words die, six, die, die, as the final seconds tick away, five, four, three, two, one, die. And it's unclear who is shouting this. It's a strange, kind of slightly distorted voice. It doesn't appear to be six because he doesn't he doesn't seem to be shouting these things. And it comes from off screen, but I don't know if it's actually the presence of uh, like number one in some way in like echoing in in uh, number two's head in some way. Um, what I sometimes like to think is that this is the actual voice of the butler shouting from outside. <laughs> He's this really small guy who's this really deep voice shouting, "Die, die, die!" <laughs> but in reality, no. It's just this. It's this moment when you can almost feel in this scene his life being extinguished. In, I mean, it's it's very theatrical. Again, it's not, you know, it's, it's a death which involves, you know, it's very prolonged and it's, you know, it's very drawn out and it requires you to experience all the throes of him being killed. Even in death, everything remains completely overwrought and melodramatic in the embryo room. Whereas number six is very much now the character we know he's in control he's calm and also there's a a smugness that comes from knowing that he is defeated and not just a plot orchestrated on behalf of the village but he's actually taken out number two as well and he know he must also know that the stakes are very different here he's not undermining a big plan he's actually taking out the the person who mediates these plans on behalf of the village. And that exposes the village and shows a tremendous weakness, which hasn't been observed before. And that's probably why the village doesn't like using a number two directly in these things, because if something were to happen to them, the chain of command goes straight from them to revealing who is above him or her. Yeah, so Six doesn't appear particularly happy that this has happened. Um, he checks that number two is actually dead, slightly dispassionately, but he seems maybe a little bit perturbed at, at what's transpired. And he, he leaves the trailer and shuts the bars before going over to the main door, which slides open to reveal the supervisor, who uh, says congratulations as if this was just a game mm. that he's just managed to win rather than something that has resulted in another person's death. Yes, the supervisor walks over to the trailer and says that they'll need the body for evidence. And number six is clearly so angry that he smashes the glass onto mm -hmm. the floor because he didn't want any of this to happen. Yeah. 
and then he asks number six, what do you desire? And I'm not sure if number six believes this might actually be a trick question, but he responds very honestly and says, number one. And the supervisor says, I'll take you and leads him out of the room. And as they leave, the side of the trailer swings down and slams shut. And it's almost like the curtain's closing down at the end of a performance. Yeah, and the bar's slamming at the end of an episode, usually on on number six in the end credits. Mm. And you hear the refrain of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star Play, which implies that the whole circle has gone around through second childhood and, uh, and into death. And as number six and the supervisor leave the room, the camera just pans across the now empty stage where you can no longer see number two's body because the um, shutters have come down but the rocking horse is still moving yeah and the swing is still going yeah it's so sinister it's like the lights fading down on a set at the end of a play where the people are all gone but the objects are all still in motion as if they were there yeah and you'd wait a few seconds and then the lights would go down and then the applause would stop. And that's kind of how you feel watching this. It does feel like you're watching a play. Mm. And it has all the intensity of it and all the all the structure of it as well. And when it ends, it feels very much like you have watched the curtain go down, kind of on the first act of uh, the finale, almost. It, it feels like this is the first third, almost. And then the following episode becomes second act. And again, it's a complete shift in tone that we won't go into now. But I think this is the ideal setup for that last episode. It's a very unusual episode, but it's a remarkable episode to watch just as an episode of television. You know, it's got fantastic performances. It's got a huge amount of courage in trying to present the village and the concept of the prisoner in this way. And I think ultimately it shows how bold and original the prisoner was especially when you consider that this was actually an episode conceived so early on in the run so i want to go back to shakespeare again if i may (laughs) (laughs) you don't seem that surprised (laughs) Not at all. Because <laughs> the, the whole thing has obviously been framed around the uh, All the World's a Stage, Seven Ages of Man speech from As You Like It. And I know we've talked a lot about the influence of the Theatre of the Absurd on the way it's all staged. But what I want to talk about is specifically the way that magical realms outside of the world or away from the world are used to fix people in Shakespeare because this happens in well, As You Like It in particular, also happens in uh, A Midsummer Night's Dream and in fact probably most of his comedies really where the the it's usually in a forest that is a place in which magic can happen and people are transformed people's identities shift um, you know, if you think of in uh, something like As You Like It or Twelfth Night where people Um, You have women who dress as men and live completely different lives or in a Midsummer Night's Dream where people are enchanted to fall in love with one another or turned into 
asses heads and stuff like that and that the purpose of those spaces in those comedies is that you have a place that is away from the real world in which these transformations can happen and the purpose of those transformations is to heal whatever rifts exist in society so that when the characters come back out of those magical spaces into society at the end they are fixed but they're fixed in the sense that they fit back into what the social order is deemed to be appropriate um, at the time so it's almost always that uh, all of the couples who are supposed to be in love end up with each other at the end and they all get married and live happily ever after and everyone who's supposed to be at a particular social station in life ends up back in that social station the good people have their reputations restored uh, the bad people are found out um, you know everyone gets their just desserts in accordance with what society deems people deserve at that time right so when you know when, when everyone comes back out of the forest at the end of midsummer extreme everyone's paired off very happily and they all get married and the rifts within the fairy world get mended and and the, the purpose of these transformational states which all take place on a stage very much like the way this one is presented and often with quite minimal props because you're using the language of theatre to imply what's going on it's people almost being brought back into what their role in society is supposed to be but while they're in that wild space they can be someone else so the women can pretend to be men they can have other lives but eventually everything is meant to go back to air quotes normal of whatever normal is supposed to be and uh, it, I find it interesting that early on in this episode one of the nursery rhymes they use is Jack and Jill go up the hill because in a couple of Shakespeare plays he uses the phrase Jack and Jill to refer to the way that couples are meant to be together so in A Midsummer Night's Dream it's Puck who declares when he's trying to put things right and put the couples back the way they're supposed to be he says Jack shall have Jill naught shall go ill and in doing so he's restoring what is meant to be the natural order and again in Love's Labour's Lost where spoiler alert famously they don't all end up together because the women all leave the forest and go home because one of them has been notified of the death of her father she says our wooing doth not end like an old play Jack hath not Jill in other words the way things are meant to end is meant to be Jack and Jill together and if it doesn't end that way it's because the story isn't turning out right but in the world of the prisoner you have this an effectively magical space where people can have their minds transformed I mean that they come up with a lot of technological hoo-ha as to how they're doing it with wave bands and pulsating lights but it's really effectively magic because those things can't actually happen it may as well be magic for all intents and purposes that if the purpose of that process in that magical space away from society was meant to push number six back into the place society thinks his place in social order is meant to be it doesn't work and it can't work because he he won't he won't go in he's a, a square peg in a round hole you know, that that imagery goes all the way back to arrival. You know, the, the the workings of it on him 
cannot transform him into someone who is going to take his designated place in society again afterwards and so it, it can't end happily it has to end with effectively the tragedy of number two dying and number six leaving having come through the process essentially unchanged the transformation that was meant to be worked on him through the, the magic of that space has not happened and he leaves the same person that he came in as and, and this is really where it diverts from you know most plays that you would think of for the theatre of the absurd where characters usually remain trapped in the space where they are but they can't leave or they're trapped within the narrative in which they began in the same space you know it, it would be very unusual for a one of those stories to end with a character actively leaving and going off to do something but that's where we end up here and this you know this is where the prisoner diverts from all of it from all of those theatrical conventions that not only is he not changed by this process but he gets to leave and you know he gets to leave with his agency intact and he's going to go on and do something more afterwards and how do you think that reflects the fact that all that is true of number six, but number two does remain in the room at the end. Yes, yeah, so he he is trapped by his circumstance. He doesn't get to uh, he doesn't get to leave, and in some respects, he is transformed. Um, or or maybe that's the person that he always was, and it just came to the surface. <laughs> So we'd like to thank you for listening to our recap and discussion of the wonderful Once Upon a Time, episode 16 of The Prisoner. Yes, it's in some ways a really quite gruelling and exhausting episode to watch. It certainly seems to have been a gruelling and exhausting episode to have made and I actually feel kind of drained having talked about it for the last two hours. <laughs> <laughs> but it's one of those pieces of television that you know, 50 years on, it's still an, an absolutely remarkable achievement. Um, it's, it's as startling now, I think, as it was to have been when it was broadcast. And that ending, I think, given that it suggests that we are on the verge of getting some answers as well, it's that sense of closure which it hints at that make it a really striking episode. If it had ended with him leaving the room and going back into the village for another adventure would be very, very different. But knowing that, um, I think I think going into the episode, knowing that it's going to end with the supervisor appearing and saying that he's going to take number six to number one, it just has an extra weight to all the events because it shows that this is not just a adventure in the village kind of episode. This is one which is leading somewhere very particular and although it's an unusually structured episode it is really integral to the mythology of the show because it's about to lead into the i think frankly remarkable final episode of the prisoner that we'll be covering in our next uh, uh, podcast when we talk about fallout yeah so we'd really love to know what everyone thinks of once upon a time whether this is your 50th time watching it or whether you've just watched it for the first time mm -hmm. what you make of this episode 
it would be really fascinating to get people's takes on it because I know that some people adore it, some people really don't like it. It's a bit of a Marmite episode, but we'd love to get your feedback, which you can send to us on social media or on email or all the usual ways you can get in touch with us. So one very big fan of the episode is documentary filmmaker Chris Rodley. And we actually met up with Chris a few weeks back and we had a chat with him about the episode Once Upon a Time. And that is going to be featured in our next episode of the Tally Ho podcast. So rather than putting it in this episode uh, directly, we have sort of an extended discussion about Once Upon a Time with some slight tangents that uh, have some spoilers for Fallout as well. Yes. And uh, so if you tune to the next episode of the Tally Ho, we'll be chatting about Once Upon a Time with Chris. And Chris, you will know from his work on putting together the, the really fantastic 50th anniversary documentary on The Prisoner, In My Mind, which features reflections on his time interacting with and interviewing Patrick McGowan uh, back in the early 80s for the Six Into One documentary. Yes, that's all coming up next time. But meanwhile, in this episode, uh, coming up next, we've got all the news from the world of The Prisoner from Rick Davey of the uh, Mutual website. Take it away, Rick. This is Rick Davey of The Unmutual website at www.theunmutual.co.uk with all the latest news from the world of The Prisoner. The book Whiffle Lever to Fall, which charts one man's attendance of several classic TV conventions, has been re-released in a new edition by publisher Hodder and Stoughton. The book, by writer and BBC radio broadcaster Bob Fisher, includes the Unmutual website's PM2006 event in Port Merion, as well as Doctor Who, Star Trek, Blake 7, Red Dwarf and many other conventions. Several magazines available this month have content related to The Prisoner. Issue 3 of Absolute Lotus magazine includes a section on TV cars, which includes, of course, The Prisoner's Lotus 7. And Infinity magazine issue 13 includes an interview with Annette Andre about her time on The Prisoner and other ITC series. Network Distributing have extended their Bonkers sale to include more Prisoner and Patrick McGowan-related titles, including the documentary In My Mind at only £3 on Blu-ray, Andrew Pixley's The Prisoner, The Illustrated History hardback book at £6, and several Patrick McGowan movies at £2 each. Check out networkonair.com for details. And finally, yet another guest has been announced for the A Celebration of ITC event at Elstree Studios on November 17th. Derek Wells, who worked at MGM's art department during the time of The Prisoner, will join actors Shane Rimmer, William Gaunt, Annette Andre, Angela Douglas, Prentice Hancock, Georgina Moon and Jenny Hanley, director John Huff and Tony Sloman and Jamie Anderson. A limited number of tickets are still available. Check out the Unmutual and Coit Media websites for more details. Join me again on the next Tally Ho podcast for all the latest news from the world of The Prisoner. Be seeing you. So we'd like to thank you, Rick, for bringing us all the news from the world of The Prisoner. We look forward to hearing from you again on the next Tally Ho podcast. Yes, and if you want to get in touch with us about Once Upon a Time or anything else in general, really, <laughs> that you feel like talking about, uh, you can find us on Twitter at TFCAA, or on Facebook, there's a group for Time for Cakes and Ale, or on our website, timeforcakesandale.com.
Next time we'll be talking about Once Upon a Time with Chris Rodley. The episode after that will be our last Tally Ho podcast about the main episodes of The Prisoner when we discuss episode 17, Fallout. We've got a few things planned for that episode in particular and what will come afterwards. One thing we do want to flag is if you're listening to the podcast and you have any thoughts about the episode, what it means to you, what you think it's about, etc., please do get in touch with us because we would love to get some thoughts on Fallout from people who listen to the podcast, who are fans of The Prisoner, and uh, we'd like to read some of those out on our last few episodes as well relating to Fallout. Yeah, so you can drop those to us on Facebook using the uh, Messenger on the Facebook page if you're on Facebook, or you can DM us on Twitter at TFCAA, or you can put them in the comments on the website. Um, We've got some comment section open at the bottom of this episode if you want to let us know your thoughts about either Once Upon a Time or about Fallout, and if you're happy for those thoughts to be included in our coming episode. So that's it for this episode from the Tally Ho podcast. Be Be seeing seeing you. you!